On this edition of Geopolitics and Empire, we're speaking with Dr. Julian Dierkes. He's a sociologist and associate professor at the University of British Columbia. Some of his research is focused on Mongolia, and he just came back from Ulaanbaatar. We'll be talking about the progress Mongolia has been making in recent years, as well as some of the recent seemingly anti-democratic amendments that have been made by President Batulga. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Dr. Dierkes. My pleasure. Always fun to talk about Mongolia. Now, I'm a former Peace Corps Mongolia volunteer. I lived in a yurt. I spoke intermediate Mongolian. I absolutely love Mongolia and would love to return someday. Um, and I, I, I especially enjoy the freedom of, of the empty step. And so you just returned from Mongolia, fresh off the plane. And some of the most notable recent developments have been President Batulga's amendments that expand the power of the presidency over the judiciary and limit the judiciary's political uh, independence. And so we're seeing articles on, on Bloomberg, on foreign policy and other places talking about this uh, trend away from democracy. So what, what can you tell us about some of the latest developments there? Yeah, I'm, I feel sort of lucky that, that I had a trip coming up in, um, in the last two weeks that I happened to be going there anyway with, with developments as they happened. I think my biggest, um, you know, because being there always gives better answers than, than looking from afar. So I think the biggest conclusion I came away with is um, that a lot of international observers and some Mongolians are fairly concerned about recent developments, but that a lot of Mongolians are not concerned. Uh, and um, in a democracy, ultimately, it's the people who decide. Um, and so I, I think my concerns are, are somewhat tempered. Uh, that's not to say that they've gone away, uh, but that I'm a little less worried than when I went. And so the, the question really, the amendments introduced um, have reconfigured um, the appointments, but perhaps more significantly dismissals of, uh, of officials in the judiciary system. Um, appointments had previously already been routed through something called the, um, the Judicial Council, uh, and, and that continues to be the case, and it now involves the National Security Council, which consists of the President, the Prime Minister, and the Speaker of the Parliament. Um, and previously that had been at the initiative of the President, so some people have argued that this is actually a strengthening uh, of, of democratic oversight, if you will, because it's now the National Security Council that makes those kind of decisions. Others have focused in their commentary on um, in the introduction of power to dismiss and are quite concerned that, um, you know, that really uh, puts pressure or gives leverage over judges uh, and investigators, for example, in a way that didn't exist before. Um, and so there, there's concern on the one hand um, and there's support for, for some of this on the other hand. And how would you, maybe if you could comment as well on, on the president, uh, Batulga, I, I was reading a recent Bloomberg piece uh, about him, and I've read this elsewhere, that people view him as a, a, a as a man of the people, kind of in the populist sense that he's a self-made man, and they view him as, as one of their own. Um, and how would you view him as a person in the work that he's been doing and kind of projecting in the future, like where the trend uh, continues? Because you, you, you're saying that it doesn't seem that things are that drastically turning for the worse. Uh, and so, I mean, what are your thoughts on the president? Well, so uh, he's been a president now um, almost two years. He was elected in 2017. Uh, he had previously, until 2016, been a member of parliament. Uh, he is, I think you're right in with a characterization of something like a man of the people, 
whether that's a characterization he tries to build or whether that's actually how he's perceived um, is still a little bit subject to debate. Uh, you know, for, for people like you and me observing uh, and trying to analyze, the biggest challenge is that he doesn't have an explicit political agenda. And that's also a piece that's a that to for me at least that's a bit worrisome that when there's uh, powerful politicians that command uh, respect as they should in their office and and also have some degree of popularity, but that it's very unclear from the outside in what direction they're heading uh, means that we just wonder why they're there uh, and and what directions they might go in and and that's that's a little bit of the the challenge to explain and that um, he he doesn't really veer towards one side or the other on particular debates, but then he suddenly has picked up over the last two years, has picked up sort of issues, typically somewhat populist. So an example there would be that that suddenly he, he reintroduced the debate about um, the death penalty, which had been abolished and which Mongolia has committed to in international treaties to abolish. Um, but around particularly gruesome cases of abuse and murder of children, then he suddenly reintroduced this debate. Um, and not as part of a bigger justice system reform or a bigger agenda, but simply on this particular topic. And, and I think that's an example of where he sort of reacted. And, and you might think of that as a, a sort of pandering to popular moods. Um, and so on the whole, we don't see a real trajectory, at least I don't, in the policies he's pursuing. And um, that makes you wonder of sort of where things are heading. He would be up for re-election in 2021. That's a four-year term. Uh, and the, uh, you can serve a second term as president, so he'll be up in two years, um, and we'll just kind of have to see how that develops. And you have a blog you can tell us uh, later a bit uh, about, and you were assessing, you know, medium term, long term, the democratic prospects uh, of Mongolia. And I mean, o over the long term, do you feel confident? So there's a there's a little bit of a, a hole, maybe even a big hole somewhere in the heart or at the core of Mongolian democracy. And that's uh, that's substantive debate and substantive contest, if you will. Uh, the two big parties that have dominated for many years, um, the Democratic Party and the Mongolian People's Party, don't align ideologically. Um, sometimes people refer to them as one being pro-business and the other social democratic or so, but that's it's not a consistent policy theme. And so really it's politics built around patronage and around particularly individuals. And um, and I do worry a little bit how stable that is in the long run. And I do worry that that doesn't really give Mongolians who've, who, who've gone through many rounds of um, contested elections, but contested around personality, not around substance. So it doesn't really give voters an opportunity to determine the direction that the country is taking. And what that's led to, I think, is a significant amount of voter frustration who see um, Many good laws passed, many good plans passed and adopted, but uh, not much implementation of, of uh, a lot of those good plans. Uh, they also see a polity that is increasingly looks um, to be systemically corrupt. We, there was just a big corruption scandal that broke out um, late November around a state fund that was meant to be supporting small and medium enterprises. But it turned out that a I think 22 out of the 76 members of parliament help themselves to, to low interest loans. And so the perception is that, uh, that the corruption is, uh, you know, an amount of state ca capture and really grand corruption slowing everything down. And so frustration has been built up with voters. Um, but 
the question then becomes is, will the parties reform from the inside? Will new political actors show up or do we see some kind of a radical upheaval, whatever that may be, you know, whether it's something that ends up being something ugly, like an authoritarian, more authoritarian system, or some kind of a, um, you know, another democratic revolution, like in 1990, something peaceful like that, that just leads to a bigger change is, is unclear. But it's a bit of a, an uncertain moment, I think, over the medium term. And how important is it to think about the cultural uh, context, uh, if we think about Mongolia as well as the n surrounding uh, countries, because I'm here in Kazakhstan, uh, I've lived in Mongolia, and you know, I, I've, I've been to Russia, and I'm sure you've traveled to a lot of these places. And you, with the society and the culture, uh, a lot of the times they themselves prefer uh, like a str kind of a strong man, not not a dictator per se, but they like this idea of strong people uh, in charge of the government versus in, in the West where we have, you know, these very vibrant uh, democracies. So how important is that factor uh, in the democracy here? Because it's, it's hard sometimes to just, you know, Im impose democracies on uh, these some of these countries in, in the East. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm not someone who looks to sort of uh, national identities as as fairly deeply inscribed and unchangeable. And, and so that's not a causal factor I, I, I really focus on. And I would probably answer largely for Mongolia that it's been 30 years of democracy and that was not at all imposed, right? The, the 1990 democratic revolution, of course it happened in a context of big upheaval in, uh, in, the, 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 in the Soviet Union and Russia and its various satellite states. Um, in Eastern Europe, of course, and to some extent in Asia. And so uh, obviously it was part of a, a bigger, uh, to some extent, global movement. But really the specifics of the Mongolian revolution happened in Mongolia. And there wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of foreign involvement at the time. And so, uh, you know, I think that was a genuine revolution. And it was one that was a democratic revolution. And so for what we can say for the past 30 years, we, we've seen a preference for revolution expressed in um, for democracy expressed in that revolution. And Mongolia is demographically quite young, and so more than half of the population was born after the democratic revolution. And so to think that there's some kind of a cultural preference for non-democratic government, um, I, I'm not totally persuaded, because where would that come from? I mean, that would suggest that the, the current generation of, let's say, 25 to 30-year-olds would have had to have very strong inculcation from their parents or from someone else to lead them that way. And that strikes me a bit as unlikely. There are, of course, arguments that people are making, perhaps increasingly so in Mongolia. Um, but I don't think that they're a culture preference. They're more, uh, you know, the, the same glance that, I mean, one of the factors in the 1990 revolution uh, was that, that China just obviously had a failed uh, revolution in 1989, with um, with massacres at Tiananmen Square, we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of that as well. And so that played a big role in 1990 in Mongolia, that that's a direction that they didn't want to take. Since then, however, China has obviously economically succeeded um, and is a present uh, alternative model, whatever you want to call that, uh, in Mongolia. And so there, there, is, there are some notions of, you know, a less deliberative, uh, less messy, perhaps, system of government uh, might be might lead to better results in terms of uh, human development in terms of economic growth 
Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean uh, explicitly uh, imposing uh, the democracy from the West. I kind of meant this like one size fits all democracy model. Um, and just thinking that, you know, countries might want to develop uh, at their own pace in their own way. But um, I wanted to ask about the economy and how things are, are going there. I was in Mongolia over a decade ago, so it's been a while. When I was there, you know, of course, th there's a lot of poverty and Things seemed all right when I was there. Uh, I kind of started to see opportunities beginning to develop for Mongolians to prosper, uh, to take these opportunities at a very slow pace. Uh, in fact, I remember when I was leaving the Gobi, uh, we were all living in, in yurts there, and my neighbor was starting to build himself a very nice little house beside his yurt uh, in the desert. And recently on social media, many of my Mongolian friends ha have found me uh, and friended me and just seeing their photos on social media, it seems they're doing uh, all right and, and better since the last time I've seen them. So how do you see the economy developing? Uh, very interesting. So what's, what year did you leave? 2007. So it's been 12. Seven. Okay. So 12 years ago. So 2007, of course, was uh, when uh, the mining boom or the natural resource boom was still a promise on the horizon. Um, then the boom happened around, uh, you know, particularly 2011, 2012, um, all built around cons the construction phase of that giant uh, copper mine in, uh, in the Gobi, Uytolgoi. Um, then there was a bit of a bust uh, that was linked, uh, and this was, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, that was linked to some policy decisions in Mongolia uh, that were perceived to be not as investor-friendly as many international investors Wanted, but also, you know, commodity price changes. And so now we've had a couple of years, and it looks like that's going to continue, uh, of pretty steady economic growth, uh, high 6%. Um, that is, you know, that's at least on the, the whole economy, the national scale is delivering some of that. Again, mostly built around now the underground construction uh, at Oyotorgoy. I think you would, um, as you found from these uh, social media pounds of, uh, uh, posts from, from contacts, you would find the countryside much changed. Um, 2007, you know, when I traveled around then in the countryside, most of it was still off-road. Uh, there's roads certainly connecting the provincial capitals now. Um, you know, cars were just beginning to appear in the countryside in 2007. You'd see, see them, they're not quite ubiquitous, but, you know, most most yurts would have a car parked near them. And so there have been big changes in that regard. And GDP has grown massively. But there are still big questions. And there are particularly big questions around uh, employment. Uh, so in the countryside, what would employment really be? I mean, as you recall, and as you sort of alluded to, um, population density is very, very low. And so the notion of any kind of manufacturing, or even to some extent service of any scale, it's difficult to imagine when the when the local and regional markets are so small. Um, then uh, one of the big changes uh, in over that over those sort of twelve ten to twelve years would have been that um, Ulaanbaatar, the capital, has continued to grow massively uh, with people migrating from the countryside. But ultimately, um, you know, that's a jobs issue as well. What would the jobs be in the capital? And so, uh, you know, the mining industry has a lot of jobs attached to it, both internationally invested as well as local. But um, but in the end, it's not that huge in terms of numbers, right? It's not going to be employment for everyone, even with the spin-off effects. And and if anything, that employment is going to reduce as we see automation coming, at least to the, the international projects. 
And so the employment piece remains relatively unresolved, even though overall the economy has been growing. Uh, and so people, there are, you know, there are people have more things uh, and more goods and have access to goods, uh, but other things remain in question. And I wanted to ask you a bit about your thoughts on the geopolitical positioning of the country. Uh, I've kind of viewed it personally in a sense is kind of a Switzerland, n neutral in the sense that where it's been peaceful and left to its own devices up until now as it's kind of uh, getting itself together. But we've got, you know, Russia, China, as well as uh, the U.S. And, you know, w when I was there in Mongolia, it seems the Mongolian people, uh, you know, we've got the new, the Belt and Road, of course, that, that that's going on and the, the Russian Eurasian project um, and then other projects linking railways and, and all, all kinds of other things. And when I was there, the Mongolians had this great, you know, suspicion and antagonism of, of the Chinese. And that's felt here in Kazakhstan uh, and, and Russia as well. But I'm sure at the same time, they want to take advantage of the Belt and Road. And, you know, just, just yesterday or this morning, one of my Mongolian friends shared a video on, on Facebook. Uh, it was in Russian and it was kind of, um, promoting this idea, this fear of, of the Chinese taking Mongolia and that the Mongolians need to, move towards towards russia so you know you've got this propaganda from all these different countries and so um i mean what are your thoughts on mongolia's positioning in a geopolitical sense so maybe the first place to start is that um you know there's not that many original foreign policies out there in the world as far as i know um and I, obviously i say this as a sociologist not an international relations scholar but uh, the third neighbor, the so-called third neighbor policy that Mongolia has developed over the past third years, really is is a is a pretty particular uh, um, stance within foreign policy, and I, I think it's been fairly successful and continues on. And so the basic idea is, um, uh, you know, Mongolia is a small country uh, in terms of world power, even though it's a very large country geographically. And it has to deal with only two neighbors, but two somewhat overbearing neighbors. These are not gentle, um, easygoing neighbors for the, for the most part, Russia and China. And so the response to this has been that um, foreign policy has to be focused on maintaining constructive and, and even good relations with those two neighbors. But that Mongolia has consistently, and the Mongolian government has consistently tried to reach out to so-called so third neighbors to build relationships that aren't built on uh, contiguous land borders, so they're not actual neighbors, uh, but to draw in other powerful countries as friends. Um, and that um, there's, there's sort of an evolving list of what we might think of as those third neighbors. That includes North America uh, with the U.S. and Canada. Um, it includes large parts of Europe, the EU really, with particular uh, links perhaps to some of the former Eastern European countries for historical reasons. That also includes Germany to some extent, maybe a little bit to Great Britain. Uh, that also includes NATO to some extent, right? Um, and then within Asia, it, uh, that means uh, the big democracies, big powerful democracies like uh, Japan, South Korea, India. Um, and so... The Mongolian foreign policy has aimed at deliberately cultivating these countries with friendly relations over the past 30 years through the UN, through UN peacekeeping, through membership in international organizations and the like. And that's really been quite successful in that uh, if, if you thought about Mongolia, it shows up in international news um, and, and in the context of international relations more often than it should for the small population and, and really not much power 
that it has. Um, and that is uh, your description of, of sort of a Swiss neutrality is apt in that sense. Uh, former President Ebekdodge even um, sort of um, hastily made a proposal for actual neutrality at the UN that was then later dropped. But there are those discussions in place. And so I think that comparison works reasonably well. And that continues to hold when it comes to the international realm, although perhaps uh, President Batulak now is a little less active in, in reaching out to third neighbors. But that brings us then back to the two neighbors uh, and the, the popular attitude towards China remains uh, relatively hostile, um, even though the government interacts very much with China and there really isn't much of a choice as the economy is entirely dependent on China, uh, both as a customer and as a supplier. So there really isn't much to be done about that, uh, but there is not much love for China in the population. Um, Although that also may be changing. So, for example, um, China has been directing a lot of scholarships at Mongolian students to come study in China. And, and you know, that kind of soft power move um, does pay off in the end, right? So, the, so that may be changing to some extent. The relationship with Russia is also quite interesting in that uh, there's a really quite significant um, amount or extent of gratitude towards the Soviet Union, if you will, um, Yes, uh, there was suppression of various things. There was mass murder, particularly in the 30s, that was inspired by Stalin. Um, but the association of Mongolia with the Soviet Union also brought um, modernity, if you will, to Mongolia in a way that would have been unimaginable otherwise. So think of something like literacy that was presumably achieved in the 60s. Um, Think about modern development, cities. I mean, these are all things that in most people's minds are associated with, uh, at least historically, uh, with the Soviet Union and us with Russia. And so that relationship remains a, a somewhat positive one, even though contemporary Russia uh, doesn't show much interest in Mongolia, um, only sporadically that it really shows up. Um, there's a little bit of nudging towards the Eurasian Economic Union although it's really unclear what benefit that would hold at all for Mongolia, given that it doesn't export uh, in that direction very much at all. Um, so there's some nudging from Russia, I think sort of at the level that, that you just mentioned of videos, propaganda, social media activities. That's also a little bit unclear because I think it's not plausible to think that, that um, the Russian government is really investing into, into any kind of serious effort to sway the Mongolian public. It just it's just not big enough in the end to throw a lot of money at, uh, I think. Um, but those are undercurrents to those relationships. Uh, and, and that's, an, you know, it's, there's some tensions there. And, and I speak from Canada, where we have a, a large overbearing neighbor. Uh, and that's a difficult relationship. I think that holds for you in Kazakhstan as well. Uh, Kazakhstan itself is also quite large, but also has to contend with um, an increasingly active neighbor um, to its east. And so that's not an uncommon situation that Mongolia finds itself in. North Korea is a particular piece in that, but go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that the situations, uh, there's a lot of uh, overlapping. Um, um, the, form, the policy is similar with Kazakhstan. They have this multi-vector approach. And so it seems like Mongolia and Kazakhstan have been uh, going at it in the similar way to try to get along with everyone, which I think is good and, and constructive. Uh, and if you want to just mention about what's happening uh, uh, with uh, North and or South Korea uh, and Mongolia, any thoughts there? Because I think they're one of the few countries that have um, official diplomatic relations, uh, Mongolia and North Korea. And then we've seen 
the foreign ministers recently uh, visit there. And so I think it's unclear what's going on there. But I mean, do you have any thoughts about the Koreas? Yeah, so the, the North Korea piece is really quite interesting. It's not only formal relationships, but it's actual friendship, right? There's actually sort of personal and, and warm relationships uh, stemming uh, largely from the, sh the shared state socialist um, history uh, that obviously has ended for Mongolia, but that continues in a, in a particular way in North Korea. But for example, um, during the Korean War, a significant number of uh, North Korean children were evacuated to Mongolia. Um, the Mongolian ambassador stayed while, you know, when Pyongyang was being bombed in the Korean War, the Mongolian ambassador stayed. And it's these big symbols of connections that are remembered strongly, um, perhaps more so with the North Korean regime than, than elsewhere. Uh, where these kind of symbols uh, matter a lot to them and, and continue to be reenacted, if you will. It's just uh, this, this year, this past year has been the, the celebration of uh, an anniversary of diplomatic relations. And so Mongolia has a different relationship to North Korea than, than really anyone else. It's not driven by power or patronage the way that perhaps the Russian and obviously the Chinese relationship with North Korea is. But it's really a bit more of an emotional almost uh, relationship. Um, and so there are frequent visits. Um, current Foreign Minister um, Tsokbata was in, uh, in Pyongyang last year. Um, visits come the other way. There's an embassy in Ulaanbaatar. There's an embassy in Pyongyang. Uh, and so there are connections there. Um, sometimes third countries then rely on those connections. So uh, there's been some negotiations over the Jap Japanese abductees that have been hosted in Mongolia. The Ulaanbaatar Dialogue is a track one and a half event that happens in June that has had high level North Korean participation in the past. And, and then other countries have had a chance to interact with the North Koreans that way. And so that's a connection that's that's available. Um, there was a bit of a flare up about a year ago in discussions about whether the first uh, meeting between um, Kim Jong-un and uh, President Trump might have been held in Ulaanbaatar and, and apparently was in the running vaguely. And so there's there's uh, moments when that relationship becomes important, uh, even though it's not a relationship that has uh, real foreign relations content. So there's not a lot of inter trade between the countries or there's not a lot of shared mutual interests or anything like that. But there's a connection. And for, you know, not many places have a connection to North Korea. And so that turns out to be useful sometimes as a way to engage with the North Koreans. Is there any... You know, last thought that you can leave us with or some question, uh, important question that I failed to answer or uh, ask and, or if there's anything on, on your mind that's really uh, that you're thinking about regarding Mongolia right now. Well, there's elections, right? Uh, we're a, a little over a year away from the parliamentary election. Uh, that'll be in June next year in 2020. There's a by-election for a parliament this June in uh, the province of Henti um, that perhaps will see some positioning by by some big names that might run as candidates or not. Um, but a lot of the focus of discussions and of, of uh, sort of trying to guess strategy and political strategy, policy decision making uh, will be on the run up to the election next year. And so there's some big questions around that. Uh, in previous elections, there's often been changes to the electoral system. Um, a couple of different varieties, including some proportional representation mostly though a majoritarian system. And so will there be another choice around that? 
there's a couple of proposals for constitutional reform uh, that could still be raised before then. Um, maybe seems a little unlikely, but you know, examples like this judicial appointments decision in late March that was really came overnight with very little discussion, which is one of the reasons that people were concerned about it as well. But that might happen to constitutional reform proposals because they've been in the air for some years because the constitution leaves the balance of power between the prime minister and the president a little bit unclear. And so those proposals have been in the air and they might come before then. Uh, so I think those are the sort of things to keep an eye on for the coming year. All right. And, you know, I, I only recently came across uh, your work and I found you on Twitter and I think it's a great resource. You you tweet a lot, and uh, as well as some of your other colleagues, and you have a blog as well. And so I think if people want to learn about Mongolia, uh, they can go to, uh, to your sites and, and follow there. And can you tell us uh, the best places people can find you online? Yeah, the blog is called Mongolia Focus, uh, and even a Google search should get you there. Otherwise, Mongolia Focus, all one word, dot com. Um, I'm at Jay Dekes on Twitter. That's J-D-I-E-R-K-E-S. And as you mentioned, I have a number of collaborators, some Mongolian graduate students here at the University of British Columbia and some others that, that write guest posts. Um, and we're really very much focused on Mongolia right now and contemporary Mongolia. Um, and so hopefully that's, that's a site and that's uh, some content that people will find interesting. Okay, Dr. Jerkis, Bayerla or thank you, mm -hmm. as they say in Mongolia, for the interview. Thank you. It's been terrific. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming, you can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.